This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Wednesday, January the 17th, 2024. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. There were some visitors who stopped by AMI HQ yesterday from the Canadian Council of the Blind, and one of them was a musician. And he heard this intro music and just started vibing. So there you go. If you like this song, maybe you're a musician too. Coming up on the show today, January is Alzheimer's Awareness Month. Dr. Nicole Anderson has some tips on identifying and preventing risks of dementia. The Paris Agreement. You know that, it's a climate agreement. It's asked nations to pledge to keep the temperatures from exceeding an increase of 1.5 degrees. Spoiler alert, they're gonna miss that target. Journalist Arno Kopecki explores the implications. And CES unveiled a whole slew of gadgets last week. Jenny Bovard, Megan Gilmore and I play a game of useful or useless. That's also going to relate to the Daily Poll. Let's get to the top story of the day, and it's all about energy, 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 energy. Alberta oil production hit an all-time high in November. Michelle Zadikian drills into the details. The Alberta Energy Regulator says crude oil production in the province rose 8.8% in November to a new historic high of 4.2 million barrels per day. Eight capital analyst Phil Skolnick noted the numbers made Canada the fourth largest oil producer globally. We were ahead of China and just behind Iraq. The Trans Mountain Pipeline project is nearly complete and Skolnick says without the pipeline expansion, Canadian oil production volume would likely exceed this country's current total total pipeline capacity in the second half of this year. Michelle Zadikian, The Canadian Press. In a somewhat related story, gas prices continue to drop in the United States. Alex Stone pumps out this report. With less demand to travel during this time of the year and winter blends of gas, prices keep inching down closer to the $3 mark not seen since 2021. New data from the Energy Department showing the nation's average price for regular unleaded is now at three oh six a gallon, 25 cents a gallon less than a year ago at this time. But analysts warn prices won't stay that low in a few weeks as travel picks up nearing spring and summer blends of gas come back. Alex Stone, EBC News. Thank you very much, Mr. Stone. And of course, energy policy and climate will be explored later in the show when journalist Arno Kopecki stops by. Let's get to the daily polls at Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Yesterday, I forced you, I forced you to wander into some controversial territory. And I asked you this, how do you feel about people self-diagnosing themselves with disabilities? The on-air acknowledgement was, this is kind of nuanced and hard to vote on. On social media, 100% of you said it's bad. 0% of you said it's good. And that is further backed up by some of these notes from the comments section. Kendall writes in, bad. It's a major conflict of interest. 
Also, from personal experience, hearing others diagnose themselves with anxiety, depression, and OCD leaves me feeling quite unvalidated. I'm an expert about how I feel, but I'm not a health professional. Tony says, bad, as they are often incorrect. As another stated, it also invalidates the diagnosis of others and is often used as a way to abuse supports for persons with disabilities. John votes in, besides, quote, bad, it is contrary to the assessment process in determining access to services like accessible transit and accessible parking. So, yes, there was nuance explored on air a few times yesterday, but on social media, y'all were heard in a unanimous way. Thank you for getting involved in the voting process. At Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, today's Daily Poll way less controversial, and this is a preamble to the game of useful or useless that will be played later in the show with Jenny and Megan. CES showed off a whole bunch of new tech last week. What kind of technology makes you want to part ways with your hard-earned money? Portable large screens, tangle-free charging cables, keyboards for touchscreens, or other? Let's go to local pessimist Alex Smythe first. Alex, you've already tipped your hand to me on this one. Yeah, Dave, uh, having searched up and down what CES has to offer this year, I can't say there's really anything that jumps out to me as something I want to spend my money on. I, I looked at, oh, here's a new laptop. Oh, here's a new uh, robot cleaner. Oh, here's a robot butler. You may be, well, I don't certainly want any of those. And and even the, the ones listed, you know, a portable large screen, well, if... If I'm bringing something with me, I'm going to bring something that's going to be capable of doing a lot more things like a laptop. And frankly, I don't need a new laptop, so I'm not going to put any hard-earned money down on that or TVs or tangle-free charging cables. In my mind, there's always a way they're going to get tangled. Uh, uh, nothing is ever free of issues, despite how they're designed. So, uh, yeah, I think all these things have just left me feeling like, no, I, I, I think my money's going to stay in my pocket for now. I will get a little deeper onto this portable large screen that Asus showed off at CES last week. It's 17 inches. It folds down to the size of a small book. Easy connectivity to either devices or uh, like whether it be your cell phone or something like a laptop. And as someone who does not like a 13 or 14 inch laptop screen, those extra three inches make a big difference. Uh, insert whatever dirty joke you want to around that. Those three inches make a big difference. And I can see if there's convenience to that from my perspective as someone who likes to utilize a big screen. I'm I'm tempted I'm into it. I'm into it. I don't know if I'd shell out the dough, but I would at least go to the Best Buy and touch it and play with it and fold it around and see how it feels, because I think that would eliminate some misery in my life, and I'm all about eliminating misery when I can. Laura Bain, what about you? Are you a pessimist like Alex? Are you a cynic like Alex, or does any of this jump out to you? Oh, I don't know. I guess I fall somewhere in the middle now. Unlike Alex, I haven't looked through the whole list of products, but... Uh, well, there's thousands, I was gift but like there's thousands. Yeah. You'd be doing it all day. I was uh, gifted a robot vacuum, and I have to say, I really like that so much that some of those robot uh, household things might be a little bit tempting. But from the list that you have there, I see the benefits from a partially sighted perspective for the folding monitor and for the touchscreen keyboard, which is, I understand it, it's not like a Bluetooth keyboard like we, you know, we have now. It's, uh, uh, you know, 
buttons or what do you call them? Yeah. Like bubbles yeah, yeah. that actually raise up on the screen that yeah. you can no, no. feel they're tactile. Laura, let me, let me go even deeper here. It's actually a piece of hardware that you connect to the bottom. In this case, it's only for iPhone, but I'm sure Android uh, devices would figure this out. It pretty much turns the bottom of your, of your smartphone into a BlackBerry. It's essentially a BlackBerry keyboard that you attach physically to the bottom of your phone. Right. I think sort of like theoretically, I can see the benefit of that from a partially sighted perspective. I'm not really a gadget person or someone to go out and spend money on the newest or greatest things. And also, like, honestly, as a student with a disability, there's a lot of like existing basic technology that would really benefit me that I can't get funding for. So uh, none of this stuff actually tempts me or is, is within reach. <laughs> but um, I think if I'm going to be an optimist, I would say I see the most potential for that keyboard technology as we move more towards touchscreens. And we know there's a lot of accessibility barriers with that, um, whether it's at the entrances of buildings or um, ATMs, things like that. But really, realistically, companies would have to be motivated to install those. The technology would have to come further along. And also, there hasn't been motivation to like leave in much cheaper, just regular old keyboards so uh well i said i was going to be an optimist i guess i'm a no it's impossible it's impossible <laughs> it's impossible with you two that's fine i'm just trying to be happy on a wednesday here but you know you guys are making it very difficult for me uh here's here's the one thing i'll also ask you guys this is going to come up it wasn't in the list of these uh of these products here there's a chair a, a computer office chair that's called a gaming chair of course you got to call it a gaming chair if you want people to shell out for it $650 for an office chair how much would you be willing to spend for a good office chair Alex uh well considering I bought the one I'm currently sitting on like late last year I think I ended up spending because this one was on sale it was a floor model I think I got it for like $250 and normally it was like 400 does so it does it have like funny does it have features recliner lumbar well, it, support it's just a very comfortable LED I, lights. I, I love a mesh a mesh back uh mid-rise chair that's one of the requirements i don't know why they just feel so comfortable and this one i think is either sealy or or serta it's it's a mattress company oh. uh, that's designed a chair so you know they actually uh, can manage weight they can make it comfortable I sit on this chair for hours uh, throughout a day. It is one of the most comfortable chairs I've ever sat in, especially for an office chair. And so I highly recommend anyone who's looking at it, like considers alternative brands and the standard chair brands you have. So this is one I'm happy with. So I would like, if I had to buy it full price, like $400, I would because I know there's the value in it, right? It's like the idea of a good pair of shoes, a good mattress, a good chair if you're working like in a seated position for most of the day. These are this is where you're spending a lot of your time. Invest in something good. You're gonna feel good at the end of the day and not have back problems, neck problems, et cetera, et cetera, because of poor seating positions. Laura, uh, Alex has bougie chair chair taste. Do you? Well, you know, the cost of a regular office chair is surprisingly high. Um, I The chair that I'm sitting on right now has one broken arm, so it really does need <laughs> to be replaced. But there are hundreds of dollars. I was able to get this one a few years ago. It was just like one discounted floor model for like $100 at Staples. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I need a new one. I don't really want to fork out a couple hundred dollars like Alex. I really value having something comfortable to sit on. I don't want to get the the cheapest of the cheap but 
Uh, my partner mentioned there might be an opportunity to borrow one from his workplace. Nice, so I, nice. I think that's the best kind of route if you can the, get that. The low, uh, low price. The low, low price of free the low, 99. The low, low price of free. Yeah, the yeah. low, low price of free 99. Okay. At Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. That's where you can vote on the poll. You can also chime in via email. Feedback at AMI.ca. Feedback at AMI.ca. Or pick up the phone and give the show a ring. one 866 509 one 509 4545 Coming up after the break, January is Alzheimer's Awareness Month. Dr. Nicole Anderson has some advice on how to look at some of the factors that can prevent or lower the risk of dementia. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and in audio at amiplus.ca. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. January is Alzheimer's Awareness Month in Canada. Alzheimer's is the most common type of dementia. There is no one specific treatment proven to prevent dementia. There are things you can do to reduce the risk. Dr. Nicole Anderson can offer some guidance. Dr. Anderson is a senior scientist, interim executive director of academic and scientific affairs and director of the Ben and Hilda Katz Interprofessional Research Program in Geriatric and Dementia Care at the Baycrest Hospital. Dr. Anderson is also the associate scientific director for the New Kimmel Family Center for Brain Health and Wellness. Hey, Dr. Anderson, good morning. How are you today? Good, how are you? Uh, You must have a very small font on your business card. I do, actually. <laughs> uh, let's let's uh, jump into this right away. There are things that people can do to prevent risks of dementia by changing lifestyle choices and other health treatments. And there are a couple to get through here, and one of them is the elimination of smoking. How much can smoking increase the risk of developing dementia? Well, it's hard to say for any one factor on its own. Um, In the Lancet model, I think smoking was about 2% uh, because often people who smoke also have other conditions that increase risk. And it's important to take that that commonality into account. Mm. Um, But basically anything that's bad for the heart is bad for the brain. Uh, So smoking is one of those things that cuts off oxygen to our bloodstream. So it's starving the brain of oxygen as well. So Uh, so what the research shows is that for people who uh, previously smoked but quit five years or more ago, they look pretty similar to people who never smoked before in terms of their risk of dementia. So that's the good news is quitting and sustaining your quitting uh, really significantly reduces your risk. So to sort of flip that around, things that are good for the heart are going to be in the aggregate good for the brain. So how does physical activity play into this in regards to lowering the risk? That's probably one of the biggest factors for dementia risk that we can do something about. Uh, So there's tons of evidence that physical activity, uh, especially aerobic activity and resistance training, so strength training, uh, help to maintain cognition improve brain function and even grow the brain in size because we know that when we exercise uh, we're 
allowing new neurons to be formed uh, and become incorporated into the brain to be functional. So uh, exercise is incredibly important. And I like that we're looking at walking right now because it does not have to be becoming a triathlete. Just anything that gets your heart pumping uh, shows these benefits to cognition and brain health. I, I was actually going to follow up with that in regards to intensity, right? Because exercise means different things to different people, but generalized physical activity is, is pretty much a positive no matter how you slice it. Exactly. And what's vigorous for one person would uh, be dangerous for another person. So it's getting to your level of moderate to vigorous activity, whatever that is for you. What about mental stimulation? What about things like continuing education or ongoing learning? Yeah, that also has been shown to be associated with improved cognition and lower dementia risk. Um, we know that when we're thinking, that also induces the growth of new neurons, but also it creates like a richer neural network. So what we call better brain reserve so that if you do start developing the pathologies that lead to dementia, you have enough um, alternative pathways to use so that you might not experience cognitive decline despite the pathology. So it's important to always keep learning. It doesn't have to be formal education. It could just be uh, uh, reading books, attending lectures, discussion groups, what have you, whatever you, you are interested in should have benefits. What about social engagement? I, I, I know that as uh, a few of my um, elderly elderly family members were, 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 were advancing in their lives, there was a lot of deliberate effort by them and my family to ensure that so regular social engagement was part of their life. How important is consistent social engagement? Yeah, that's another big one too. So when we're lonely, we tend to become depressed. We have elevated cortisol, which is our stress hormone. And that hormone is pretty toxic to the brain. So it's important to stay socially connected. And what the, the research shows too, is that quality is more important than quantity. So you don't have to be connecting with tons and tons of people, but having a few close friends and confidants that you can really rely on is what makes the difference. Uh, I like the way you phrase that because I'm not the most social animal in the world, so I don't want to have to go out every night if I need to uh, keep keep this brain ticking. I value I value some of my alone time. I I, I want to broaden the picture out a little bit here because there's been quite a bit of research on dementia and Alzheimer's, and there's still a lot of really good work going on. But as the population is aging, especially based on demographics in Canada, this is going to be a more and more important issue. What is some of the broader work that you and your associates are doing? What is some of the research that you and your colleagues are targeting moving forward? Yeah, so there's a worldwide initiative called the Finger Worldwide Finger Initiative to conduct multi-domain intervention trials for dementia prevention. So um, unlike older studies that would just be, say, an exercise trial, now what we're doing is... Uh, addressing exercise and nutrition and social engagement, cognitive engagement, everything that you can think of all at once, uh, which we think will have a much more powerful benefit for dementia prevention. Um, and at Baycrest in particular at the Kimmel Family Center for Brain Health and Wellness, um, that's a research study inside of a community center that's been recently built. Um, and it's a research study for people who are age 50 and over who do not have dementia, 
um, and are willing to take part in the research study. And, and what happens is people get a very deep dementia risk evaluation, looking at both their non-modifiable dementia risk factors. The older we get, the more at risk we are. Women are more at risk than men. We can't do anything about these things. Uh, but also importantly, looking at all of the modifiable dementia risk factors, the things that we've been talking about here today, as well as a host of other things as well. And then giving people a personalized program strategy to implement within the center. Uh, so focusing on physical activity, brain healthy eating, cognitive engagement, social connections, and mental well-being. And we'll follow people over time and keep assessing their dementia risk and their cognition to see how this approach benefits them. You mentioned that some of this study is about people who are a little bit younger. And typically, perhaps people look at the issue of dementia and Alzheimer's as being something that's so centric on an aging population. How important is it for people my age, uh, geriatric millennials who are 40 years old, to, to, start, to start keeping in mind, looking for identifiers, signals, et cetera, at, like earlier on in life? Yeah, dementia is a life course phenomena. Our risk of dementia probably starts in utero, <laughs> depending on our maternal health uh, or the health of our mothers. But uh, really, there's risk factors accumulate across the lifespan, and many of them in midlife are very important. So midlife, uh, obesity, uh, hypertension, hearing loss in midlife is another very important one. So it's never too early to start thinking about what can I do to prevent my future risk of dementia. The other thing to keep in mind is that in the case of Alzheimer's disease, the brain pathology, the plaques and the tangles that most people have heard of, start to accumulate in the brain 20 years before people experience symptoms. So that's even more motivation that when you're in your 40s and 50s to start leading a healthy lifestyle to help prevent the effects of that pathology from affecting your ability to stay in good brain health. Dr. Anderson, so grateful for the time you took this morning, so grateful for the work that you and your colleagues are doing. Thank you for this. Have a lovely day. You too. That's Dr. Nicole Anderson coming up after the break. It's the regional news update with a story out of Montreal. The city wants to revitalize its downtown core. I'll share that with you. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and in beautiful streaming audio at amiplus.ca. Lots going on around the country. Let's get to it. It's the regional news updates. Starting in the province of British Columbia, the B.C. government has a plan to cut natural gas emissions at a Prince George pulp plant. The proposed idea is to utilize hydrogen power. Premier David Eby thinks that investment in hydrogen will be transformative. The innovation 
the leading edge work that is happening in British Columbia uh, is putting us in an excellent position uh, for uh, to, to really take advantage of the global shifts that are taking place around uh, reducing carbon. I've uh, told people many times, and uh, today is yet another demonstration, that resource workers in our province are on the front lines of fighting climate change. The project could cut natural gas emissions by about 25%. Over to the prairies, Banff is deciding whether to keep a pedestrian-only zone in part of its downtown core. The city created the pedestrian-only space during the pandemic. It operates in the summer and fall. City Council was set for final votes, but Parks Canada has asked for a meeting. There are some concerns about over-commercializing a public space. Over to Quebec, a different kind of downtown story. Montreal has a plan to revitalize its downtown core. Giuseppe Violante has more. The city of Montreal hopes an all-night entertainment zone can help revive its sagging downtown. Officials have released a plan to relaunch the downtown core by the year 2030. That plan includes a round-the-clock nightlife zone, possibly in a neighborhood called the Quartier Latin. Officials were short on specifics, however, about what kind of entertainment will be permitted to go on all night. They say they also want to bring in more winter activities to the area as a way of capitalizing on Montreal's northern climate. Giuseppe Valiente, the Canadian Press, Montreal. You know I am a proud Montrealer who sits in this chair. It's funny that Giuseppe brought this story forward because the last time I was in Montreal, I was thinking to myself, Downtown core doesn't quite feel as alive as usual. You know, there's still the bars and the restaurants and the clubs and the people, but there was something about it. It was like dingier, dirtier. There was something that wasn't quite what I remembered. Now that said, what I remember is from my 20s when I did not care about dingy, dirty or whatever. Uh, So maybe it was just me. Maybe it's looking at life through nostalgic lenses But this one's interesting, the idea of a 24-hour party sector in the middle of downtown. I don't know if that's going to make it uh, less dirty or dingy, though. I've already decided I want to bring this one to the news panel on Friday with Michelle McQuig and Joita Gupta, so stay tuned for that one. And finally, in the Atlantic provinces, the federal government will spend $980,000 for 56 electric vehicle charging stations in the Halifax area. Ten of the new stations will be able to fully charge a vehicle in 25 to 30 minutes. The other 46 will take between 4 and 10 hours for a full charge. Funding comes from the Natural Resource Department's EV Infrastructure Program. The chargers will be installed this spring. Coming up in 60 seconds, Alex Smythe will have the weather story of the day. But first, here is Canadian press reporter Karen Rebo with your Morning Business Minute. Canada's main stock index saw a triple-digit loss yesterday, weighed down by losses in energy and base metal stocks. Toronto's TSX index lost 113 points to close at 20,948. Wall Street returned from a long holiday weekend. The Dow Jones average tumbling 231 points and the Nasdaq giving back 28. In Tokyo this morning, the Nikkei index hit a 30-year high before finishing the day 141 points lower. And our dollar is trading overseas 
Celsius this morning at 73.93 cents U.S. And Gildan Activewear is accusing its recently terminated CEO of having inappropriately close relationships with some of the shareholders calling for his reinstatement. The Montreal-based company says Glenn Chamondy failed to disclose that he invested in funds managed by an unnamed Gildan shareholder that is now calling for his return to the apparel company. Gildan also accused Chamondy of being distracted by personal pursuits. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Karen Rebeau. Thank you very much, Karen. Let's go to Alex Smythe for the weather story of the day. Alex, uh, Arctic has been the theme this week when it comes to weather, but today uh, maybe you're going to surprise a few folks. Yeah, and it's not that the Arctic weather is uh, is disappearing by any stretch of the imagination. No, we're still very much in the grips of that Arctic weather, and it's uh, brought record lows across the country, and the impacts, as uh, many folks may know, has even been felt all the way down south in Texas in the U.S., which has been wreaking havoc on the systems of people and the businesses in that region. Now, it would be safe to assume that the cold air, because it is Arctic air, that all the way up north it would be feeling just as cold if not colder than it is around here but a unique weather system is actually causing a bit of a reversal to take place up north so this is known as a rex block which is a ridge of high pressure which has pushed its way behind this arctic mass that we've been feeling in most of the country as a result it's actually brought really warm and above seasonal conditions to Nunavut. How warm? Well, it's actually warmer currently in Nunavut than it is in Texas, to give people a bit of a idea. So uh, Monday was the most extreme of uh, this kind of case because uh, Nunavut in, in Kailuit specifically was 3.3 degrees Celsius. Meanwhile, Dallas was minus three. To put this in perspective of how unique this is, it was nearly 30 degrees above normal and only about half a degree off of its all-time uh, monthly record for temperature in January for Iqaluit. So really extreme, really unusual, just based on how these weather patterns have worked. But that said, this is not expected to last all that long because come next week, those normal seasonal conditions will return to the region. And uh, by Wednesday next week, you'll be in the, the minus 20s and the minus 30s, unfortunately, up in Iqaluit. But it just goes to show you that, you know, you don't necessarily have to travel down south to escape the cold. Sometimes you may just need to keep going north and you'll find warmer weather there, Dave. Find your bubbles uh, where you can. Alex, I made a big mistake on air yesterday. Uh, you wanted to bring this round t table topic of conversation to myself and Brock Richardson, and I totally misread your email and misread what your first question was supposed to be, and it was about what would it take for you to attend a football game when it's minus 20 Celsius outside, your level of motivation to attend an outdoor football game when it's utterly frigid, and we never got to that question because I misread your email. That's a mea culpa by me. Alex, what would it take for you to go attend an outdoor sporting event when it's minus 20? 
You know, Dave, there would be a few factors that would have to be at play. One, it would have to be the right type of stadium. So somewhere that I, I feel comfortable with that I really enjoy being at, which was kind of the main focus of the conversation yesterday, has to be the good stadium environment. And then the game itself has to be either really high stakes or I have to know that my team has a pretty good chance of winning because there's nothing worse than <laughs> being miserable because the team you're going to see is losing, losing badly, and you're cold or wet or damp or just uncomfortable. That is just a recipe for a, a bad time. So I, I think those no, are the, kind of the, the key factors uh, for Alex, Alex, but some of that's unknowable. The answer is you no. Mean, the well, answer is no. I, I went <laughs> I went to a, game, a football game in Ottawa where it was zero degrees, and it was mm -hmm. utterly miserable. I cannot imagine taking 20 more degrees off that. And I can't imagine being a football player wearing short sleeves out there in that weather. That is just preposterous. Yeah, well, there are certain games and certain matchups, Dave, as a football fan, you know, it's like, okay, the chances potentially, it's like my team should win this game or the team I'm, I'm rooting for should win this game. Obviously, it's, it's a sport. You know, and you never know the outcome. But it, if you already know it's going to be a close battle, maybe I'll just sit home wrap myself in some blankets, drink something nice and warm and watch it on TV. Uh, I went to a, a Pittsburgh Steelers and Baltimore Ravens game. You know those games are going to be knockout, dragout fights. You know they're going to be close. It was cold as well, Dave. It was around zero degrees. Uh, the team I was rooting for did not win, but I expected them not to win. So I, I was in the right headspace for that. Okay. It was a fun time, but it could have been a bit warmer or the team I was yeah, rooting for. Again, again, zero and minus 20. This is not the same language. Not the same language sure. at all. Thank you for this, Alex. That's Alex Smythe at the Weather Desk. Coming up next, consultations for proposed floating bus stops in North Vancouver took place. Amy Amanti has an update this is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Consultations for floating bus stops in the North Shore of Vancouver took place last fall. Community reporter Amy Manti talked about this previously and has an update. Take good morning, Amy. Good morning, Dave. So, Amy, what's the latest? Yeah. Well, uh, the uh, continuing bus stop, uh, floating bus stop conversation uh, goes forward. And, you know, to be all transparent, you know, we in the community here know that uh, the consultation is not about yes or no to floating bus stops. It's about floating bus stops are here to stay. Let's figure out how we do them uh, so, that, <laughs> so that the blind community is happy with them, um, which I think is a thing that is not going to be like, we'll never be perfectly happy with them. Yeah. We all know this, yeah. right? It's, it's, like, it's like scooters on the sidewalk. We're never going to like it. Absolutely. Um, I still see those uh, green bikes and scooters abandoned in the middle of everywhere, um, even though they told us that wasn't going to happen yeah, when yeah. <laughs> uh, consulted with those. Um, but alas, they do. So uh, floating bus stops now, uh, the next stage of this is looking at having these tactile maps 
that would identify where things are laid out at the bus stop itself. So, you know, now we've got um, Twizzies, tactile walking surface indicators that um, lead you from, you know, poles to the bus stop or stop you from going into the road, or you have the um, truncated dome ones, you know, the hazard one that stops you from going into the road, but then there's one on one side of the bike lane and then the other, which I find confusing because when I come to those, I think it's a road and I don't expect it to be a bike lane. I expect it to be a road, right? So there's going to be learning curves there. Um, and then you get to the other side and you're like, wait a second, I just did I cross a road or a bike lane? Like whatever. Yeah, so yeah. these tactile maps are supposed to help you. So you use your fingers, they'll be high contrast. Um, and uh, so then you can sort of feel with your fingers, okay, this is the Twizzy will lead me up to this part. This is okay, this is a, a hazard. I cross it. Oh, it's a bike lane I'm crossing. Okay, then there's another one. Okay, then there's the road that I'm crossing. Oh, and it's the same on the other side, right? This is where the APS is, the um, the speaking, you know, the audible announcement. This is where the, the bus stop is. And these are where everything is in location because some of these floating bus stops will be rather complicated and rather confusing. Um, none of them are just, you know, cross the street and there you are. There's some of them that are very confusing with like, corners that are uh, some of them have uh, there aren't just you know north south east west crossings they're uh, what we call sort of tri crossings where they go into it's just complicated so this is the idea is they're going to gather some of us together to look at these tactile maps to see if they make any sense a amy when it comes to the tactile map Mm -hmm. I, I imagine even just where it's placed really matters, right? That even if we agree or disagree whether or not it's a useful solution or at the very least a viable mitigation, <laughs> sometimes that's the word we use. Is this a viable mitigation of me yeah. risking my life trying to take the bus by crossing the street to get to a bus stop in the middle of the street? I imagine the, the placement would need to be so so clear and and in, and, and in a spot that gives you some sense of orientation because because although the concept sounds great maybe in a vacuum in practice i could see this being not helpful at all oh absolutely i mean they're going to be so easy to miss if you don't know that it's there I mean, this is so this reminds me of, of when they put in the audible pedestrian signals and uh, they told folks like in the pilot projects that if you press the button, it would activate the signal. But if you press and held the button just a little bit, it would give you like an extra two seconds to cross the street. Well, who the heck knew that? Right? Like nobody knew if you press and held it and you used a walker, you'd get a little extra time. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a, there's a public education piece that has to come with this stuff. And how do you get that information out is also a thing, right? So do you have to work with public organizations, uh, the news, uh, who's going to uh, write these public service announcements, who's going to pay for those? Yeah. Do we work with organizations like the CNIB to take groups of blind people out to show them? will they be at every crossing because now you've got you know like i said earlier we've got 44 municipalities that cover the greater vancouver area yes yes so north van does it will north van city do it will west van do it will vancouver do it will burnaby do it right so i could be in one municipality and not in another and you know uh will i experience it in the same area to know to look for it look at amy excluding new westminster like that they're going to be so angry with you in new westminster oh. for not including them uh amy <laughs> in in a different life 
I yeah. would have loved to have been a city planner. I, I think that I if, know, I'd, right? if, if I'd had more direction when I was in my teenage years, I really would have considered that as a career option. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah. too late now. I'm too old. I can't go back to school. I, I, they'll just mock me and laugh at me all the time. But I, but I do extend empathy and understanding to city planners yeah. who are trying to figure out how to make public transit better. But this yeah. came up with uh, David Lepofsky of the AODA Alliance. Mm -hmm. He identified a couple new uh, sidewalks and bike paths and crossing areas in North York, in the North York neighborhood or the northern neighborhoods of Toronto, and says mm -hmm. it made no sense because it was so different. Even though probably objectively, the design is better, even for people with disabilities. But the problem is when you start moving away from standardization, that's when you really start messing around with people's orientation and mobility. So even, so even if you consult to the high heavens, if you start breaking standardization and habits that have been built for decades for a person with a disability, it's still mm -hmm. going to feel jarring and awful. Oh, there's no doubt about that. Like I think about, um, you know, if we created a tactile walking surface indicator with a third pattern, right? Right now we've got uh, truncated domes and truncated bars. They mean two different things. Um, now let's say we added in, I don't know, truncated triangles or chevrons or something, right? Um, and said, okay, this is gonna meet a third thing. Well, that's great. Um, again, who the heck knows about that? So, you know, you can, again, come up with all the greatest ideas that you want. And in, with some of the city planners that I've worked with, again, they have the best of intentions and they say to me, oh, so we've designed this courtyard and we've used um, a different sort of pebbled aggregate on uh, this part of the sidewalk to indicate to cane users that it's a different pattern, a different texture on the ground. Will that work to keep you away from the fountain? No, because I don't know why you've used a different texture. Like, yeah, you used a different texture, but it means nothing to me. I just recognize it's a different texture, right? Mm. So, you know, these are the things that, that need to be educated um, and, and shared with planners because they, again, have the best of intentions. They install these things oftentimes without talking to community um, and think that they're, they've done the greatest thing, but it means nothing, yeah. right? Um, and that that's a big risk, right? So, um, you know, th this is the thing why we, we take, sometimes we take two steps forward and then we take a step back because you can do a lot of consultation again, like this isn't a bus stop thing, but we did a great consultation around a rec center. And I proposed, like I, I used to go to the pool all the time. And I said, you know, if we had tactile uh, walking surface indicators on the pool deck, uh, a wayfinding one where I could follow that to the entrance of the pool onto a wall where I could hang my cane. I could navigate the pool deck independently. And that would be awesome. So I gave them all of the information on the proper proper tactile paper to use, et cetera, et cetera. Then when we showed up, when the pool was open, they had actually used a tile that they found from a tile shop that was something similar and a different texture. And I was like, this is not a tactile walking surface indicator. Like, yeah, yeah. Again, you just change the tile and, I, and it doesn't send a message other than, oh, look, a different texture. And we just expect that there are different textures in different environments, right? They just don't send a message. <laughs> Amy, <So. laughs> Amy, before you and I get too far down this rabbit hole and start designing our own city, maybe we should try to lighten the mood here and move to the world <laughs> of performing arts. What do you think? Yeah. We can do that. But before we do, I will just tell you, Dave, a friend of mine uh, here in Vancouver, uh, shout out to Mike, who is uh, a good 10 years older than you are, 
just finished, uh, uh, just graduated from planning school. Oh. And uh, yeah, and is going to be a planner in Kelowna, I believe. Okay. So anything is possible. Anything is, well, you never know, you know, the, the, the sword of Damocles <laughs> hangs high over the head of any broadcasters. So you never know when it's going to fall. Uh, Amy, yeah. let's move to the world of uh, performing arts. The Push Festival is being held in January and February in the Lower Mainland. Mm -hmm. Works presented are often about challenging truths. There's going to be a presentation of Lorenzo this year, and there's going to be a Vocali live described performance on January the 19th. What's the buzz around this performance of Lorenzo? Okay, so this is a, a one-man show, um, which I think is going to be absolutely fascinating. So the artist here is Ben uh, Target, and um, Ben is uh, telling the story of his uncle Lorenzo uh, and telling the story of what it's like to be a caregiver for um, for a loved one as they age. As as you're talking about like Alzheimer's Month and having Dr. Anderson just on mm -hmm. and talking about this, so I think there's going to be um, something in there that's talking about this. They don't give too much away. Um, uh, so it's a comedy. Um, and I think uh, what I've been told, because you can get a little heads up about these things because uh, for access needs, that there's a bit of a fire performance at the end of this. Um, so I can only imagine what Uncle Lorenzo does to kind of, you know, <laughs> cause a fire to happen in the house. This is just where my brain goes. Um, but this one person performance is supposed to be pretty compelling, pretty funny. Um, and, and Ben has really been a champion, the artist himself, about accessibility. And so um, in my work with, with the Push uh, Festival and, and trying to make some of these shows more accessible, um, he said, oh, we would love to have this show described. And would you like to check out um, the prop desk that I use? So he uses this desk that's kind of like a workbench um, and kind of a little bit like something you would have seen on, I don't know, the polka dot door as a kid or Mr. Dress Up or any one of those where it's got cool little drawers and cupboards and all sorts of fun little things all over it where he constantly pulls different things out of it. And so we're going to get to explore this very unique piece of furniture that's been custom made um, before the show to understand how it operates so that when we when he pulls these things out to use in the show we understand um you, you know the the logistics and the operating of this piece of, mm. of furniture um, which i think will be interesting and then of course you know when you do a pre-show touch tour you got to stick around at the theater for a while because you're there an hour and a half before the show yeah um so uh so we'll have ourselves a little uh either a pizza party or sandwiches <laughs> or something we'll do a little Something. Amy, you always find a way. Every time you tell me about this stuff, you're like, oh, we always find a way to throw that little uh, added bonus, that little uh, extra added value. You know, I'll tell you, Dave, uh, <laughs> food gets people to come out. It does. And if the weather's like this on Friday when the show happens, <laughs> you know, um, food, free tickets. So I've arranged some free tickets for community, uh, you know, so we're doing our best to be able to support independent artists because it's also a different thing to try and get folks to come out to unique, as you said, unique shows um instead of saying hey you want to come see the sound of music or elf yeah, musical where yeah. are names that people know right um but i will tell you that some of these shows um in the last year that i have seen that are independent artists that are writing their own work has been some of the best theater that i have seen all year yeah um, so big shout out to some of these artists that are just like you know what i'm not gonna wait for somebody to give me a script and uh you know cast me in a role i am going to start making my own work Love it. Love it when people yeah. take the opportunity to control their own destiny. Yeah. As mentioned, the, the special live described performance, January the 19th, 
pushfestival.ca is the website, pushfestival, oh, excuse me, tickets.pushfestival.ca, tickets.pushfestival.ca, and if you prefer the phone number, 604-449-6000, Okay, Amy, speaking of one-person shows, speaking of people platforming themselves, a little bit of self-promotion here on the way out for you. Did I get to segue that? Okay. So I know I'm an artist. I get to do this. I know I've talked about this before, but I am a week away now from my own solo show. Um, Cause I too am not waiting around for people to hand me scripts. Although I did do an audition yesterday for Grey's Anatomy. Ooh, Ooh, you never oh, know. heck yeah. Um, here we go. So, um, McAmy, yeah, so Dr. McAmy. You could, you never know. Um, <laughs> So I am doing my solo show through my lens on my intersection of blindness and photography. And that is gonna be at a festival called the Hold On Let Go Festival. And what's interesting about that festival here in Vancouver, it runs at the same time as the Push Festival. Both of these festivals are what they call uh, international festivals and they are, are um, presenter festivals. So any, I mean, anybody can go, but they are made for presenters that are coming from all over the world to, to see the work. Um, and then if they like the work, they might say, hey, you want to come to Argentina because we do a festival or hey, you want to come to Peru, we have a festival. So presenters come from all over the all over the work to all over the world to see the, the, the works um, uh, because, you know, you're trying to sell what you're doing. Um, so it's a good opportunity for me um, to share this work. Um, and we've sort of uh, uh, changed it a little bit since I just did it in Kingston in June. And then just a week after we do it here in Vancouver, we are off to Ottawa to do it at their Undercurrents Festival um, in, uh, I think it's February 7th, we start there. So, um, but I will tell you, Dave, because you asked the question last week, oh, earlier this week about minus 50 and how long I could survive in <laughs> minus 50. I am terrified of being in Ottawa in early February. Uh, don't worry, D Amy, don't worry. Don't worry about minus 50, but you might have to prepare yourself for like minus 20-ish. I mean, I don't know that I could survive two minutes in minus 20. It's, <laughs> you know, it's snowing here and I think it's like minus one and I'm like, I'm staying inside today. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the, the nice thing is there's lots of places for a warm cocoa in Ottawa. That, you'll, you'll be all right. Okay, Amy, I'm going to give a couple dates here and a couple websites just so everybody's on the Wonderful. same page on the way out the door. January 25th and 27th for the shows in Vancouver. Hold on, let go.ca is the website for that one. And then, like Amy said, as part of the Undercurrents Festival in my old hometown of Ottawa, Ontario, February 7th to the 10th undercurrentsfestival.ca, undercurrentsfestival.ca. Amy, congratulations on the continued success. I imagine I will touch base with you before you hit the road. So all the best for a couple days here. Thanks, Dave. We'll catch up with you next week. That's Amy Amanti, community reporter in Vancouver. In 60 seconds, there are a whole bunch of music tours making their way across Canada this summer. Laura Bain will talk about a few of them in her entertainment report. But first, car companies are thinking up ways to make vehicles more customizable. Here's Mike Dubusky. 
From ABC News Tech Trends, Kia is looking to expand into the commercial vehicle space. To the world of Kia PBVs. Kia is showing off a new electric vehicle platform called the PBV, or the Platform Beyond Vehicle. Mark Vaughn with Auto Week says it's designed to be modular, meaning you can change the vehicle's body style based on your needs. You have a pickup truck, but then you want to make it into a cargo van. You just drop this cargo van on it, and it electromechanically bonds with the vehicle. Other automakers have toyed with modular vehicles, but Vaughn says it's proven challenging. Just for any number of reasons, the cost, the complexity, the fact that once you try and change around body parts like that, they might leak water, they might leak air, they might squeak. Still, Kia says they plan to start selling PBVs in 2025 for about $35,000. That is what you call ambitious. If they think they can make that work, I say <laughs> more power to them. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky. ABC News. Thank you very much, Mike. Don't forget, in about 25 minutes, a game of useful or useless will be brought to the table utilizing a few tech innovations from CES in Las Vegas. Let's go back to the world of entertainment. Bring in Laura Bain here. Laura, a couple of major music acts are going on tour this summer. You've got the list, and then I'm going to power rank it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, got some tours here to tell you about, and then I'll get you to tell me what you're going to spend your hard-earned dollars on, Dave, for a ticket. In some cases, more than others. Spo uh, spoiler alert, I've already put down money for one of these. <laughs> okay, uh, so some 41, starting off there, uh, they announced yesterday that they're heading out on what they say will be their final tour. Now, I love the name of this. It's called the Tour of the Setting Sum. <laughs> And uh, that's uh, ending up at the, you know, 76 dates around the world, massive tour. They're finishing it off in Toronto, which is kind of nice. It's their hometown. Uh, that's going to be next January. And just want to highlight for folks that those tickets are going on sale this Friday. Very good. All right. Moving on, we've got Blink 82, one more time. Blink, tour. Blink, Blink 182. Okay. That, that's number one. <laughs> um, that, sorry. No, yeah, I just I just want to make sure you got it right. Blink 182. Blink 182. Yeah, yeah, that's what I said. Yep, Blink 182. All, all I heard uh, was one... all I heard was 82. Could be my new European. Oh piece. yeah, Blink 182. One more time tour. Uh, that's the name of their reunion album, and they will be hitting Toronto on August 15th. Uh, we've got the Rolling Stones heading out on their Hackney Diamonds tour, an album that you and I have talked about. That's just got one Canadian date. They're heading to Vancouver for July 5th. You can still get tickets for that, uh, but they will cost you, I'll tell you that. Uh, Sarah McLaughlin fumbling towards ecstasy 30 year anniversary tour. That is coming to Toronto and Quebec in June. Tate McRae, Think Later Tour. Now, she's going out on a massive 2024 tour, and she's got a stop in Toronto in July, and she's also headlining a show at the Calgary Stampede, and I think that's her thats her hometown there. Uh, Queens of the Stone Age. Now, I wanted to bring out some that uh, for folks on the East Coast, because so far everything's been in Central and Western Canada, so the next two shows are coming out East. Queens of the Stone Age, you can still get tickets, Moncton and Halifax in April. And also the band Sticks in May, coming to Halifax, to Moncton, and to Summerside. Now that cost, uh, that caught my attention because very few bands come to Summerside. 
So that's kind of cool. So Dave, how would you, uh, you've heard the list now, how are you going to power rank these? <laughs> so I'll tell you the number one on my list is not on your list. So let's go in reverse order here. The bottom of my list is sticks. I've never really cared mm -hmm. for sticks and I don't really feel like going to see an old nostalgia band right above sticks is going to be the Rolling Stones. I, I just think at this point, they're too old. They're not the band that I would have seen even 20 years ago, let alone when I really would have wanted to see them about 40 years ago, if not uh, even longer than that. So we're going to put the Stones and sticks way at the bottom. I'm not familiar with Tate McRae, so unfortunately Tate McRae uh, finds themselves uh, low on this list. Then I'll bring in Queens of the Stone Age, a band that I really liked for a stretch, but haven't really done anything recently that like moves the needle for me. I'll follow that with Blink-182 because I saw them last year in Toronto and was actually a little disappointed by the show. It was fine, but I was a little disappointed. My expectations were too high, so I'm not gonna spend money on, on them again. Uh, then I'll put Sarah McLaughlin because uh, Sarah McLaughlin is really having a moment here. Uh, I've been listening to a lot of Sarah recently, and I'm just blown away by how great she was as a singer and a songwriter. So Sarah McLaughlin, I'd actually love to go see for the first time ever. Then I'll put some 41, because I'm a pop punk soul at heart. I love me a long sleeve t-shirt underneath a short sleeve t-shirt. And then number one, going off your list, already bought tickets for this show, the Death Cab for Cutie and Postal Service 20 year anniversary tour in Toronto. I am beyond excited. I saw Death Cab last summer. They were unbelievably amazing at Massey Hall and they can just take all my money. I'll just keep going to see them. I've seen them about four or five times now. Every time I see them, they're so they're they're better than the last time that I saw them. They can have all my money, all my money. Uh, Laura, what's your reaction to my list? Uh, well, I've got my list here, Dave, and I think there's some similarities and some differences. I'm going to start with the top here. Sarah McLaughlin, for me, Fumbling Towards Ecstasy. I just loved that album. That was kind of her breakout album. That's going to be my number one. And then the Rolling Stones, because I just think, uh, you know, if you get a chance to see them in your life, they're like one of the greatest rock bands we've had of the century. I would take that opportunity. Uh, Queens of the Stone Age. You know, from the list, I think they're a very solid band. I never really got into them, but I think I'm going to get a quality show there. Sticks is going to be up next. And I think it's just because we're getting into a lot of shows I don't want to see. Okay. <laughs> uh, ne next would be... <laughs> Next would be Tate McRae, um, you know, and, and I actually, I like Tate McRae, all right. So that one might go a little higher. I'm not sure. I think she's pretty good. I may be a little old for her show, but uh, at the bottom of the list, we have Sum 41 and in very last place, Blink 182. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, Dave. Um, I feel like, uh, you know, 40-year-old Laura is extremely diplomatic and polite so i'm going to channel 17 year old laura who was like listening to this music when it came out and she's going to tell you that she thinks they're uh wimpy poser punk bands so. <laughs> 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 uh, i kind of felt that way at that time i've softened now you know but i they were just never my jam well that last punch is going to give somebody a fat lip laura thank you for this have a great day Thanks, Dave. You too. That is Laura Bain, maybe in too deep when it comes to summer concert tours going across Canada. <laughs> Coming up after the break, John Lepke stops by. It's all about the sports chat, all about the Professional Women's Hockey League. 
big game last night. Montreal beat New York, and there's some big implications around the broader purpose of the league. So John and I will jump right into that. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Now with Dave Brown coming to you on AMI-tv and in audio form at amiplus.ca or on demand on the mighty AMI-audio podcast network. My folks are down in Arizona. Can't get amiplus.ca because it's geo-blocked. So they've been listening to the podcast. So hi, Mom. Hi, Dad. I'm Dave Brown. It's Wednesday, January the 17th, 2024. Coming up in the second hour of the show, the Paris Climate Agreement. You know that agreement. It says, hey, let's stop temperatures from going up by an additional 1.5 degrees. It looks like uh, the nations who agreed to that are not going to meet that goal. So journalist Arno Kopecki will explore the implications. And CES unveiled a whole slew of new gadgets last week. Jenny Bovard and Megan Gilmore play a game with me called Useful or Useless. Dave Brown loves himself a binary game to play. But the hour begins with John Lepke in a sports chat. Let's do a little bit of talk about the Professional Women's Hockey League. Montreal topped New York last night, 3-2. Marie-Philippe Poulin scored the game winner. It's Montreal's first home win. Nearly 7,000 7, people attended the game at Place Belle. Hey, John, great to have you along this morning. What's your early perception of the PWHL? I think it's a great move for, for women's hockey and, and for in Canada in general. I think it's unique in certain ways, including on the administrative side. I believe they were one of the first, if not the first, professional league in the modern era to start with a union agreement, uh, which is which is rare. Um, we've certainly seen uh, player rights issues pop up in other women's sports, most recently, I would argue, in, in women's soccer. So this um, really feels like a solid step forward. And, and I love, and we'll certainly get to it, but I love just the media um, fervor or attention that has that has led to this moment. Yeah, let, let's do the media side of this for a second. I've got a bunch of flowers to throw around here three weeks into the existence of the league. Uh, but the, the media side of this has been really great. Sportsnet and TSN have both been doing a really good job with coverage on their platforms, coverage on their digital. The, the quality of the broadcasts of the game in aggregate are excellent. And that is something that's been identified by a lot of people who've been supporting the women's hockey movement for a while, that typically the way the games were shot and filmed and broadcast were pretty amateur hour in the past. And this is a professional product, and that really helps. In the United States, Distribution is not through a network, but through YouTube, which is not perfect, but it's a great way to put the sport in people's hands, eyes, and ears at no cost, at no charge, no paywall. So, John, I think I think the media side of this is actually a huge part of this, a huge part of the early boom for the league. 
Absolutely. I mean, we, we see this in, uh, this may sound like an odd comparison, but we see this in Parasport quite often where one of the barriers, like you said, is the the broadcastability of the sport. Now, hockey has the benefit of you don't have to explain hockey, but I also love how, you know, listening to some of these, what I would call dude bro hockey podcasts, when those podcasts who in the past, I think, would have leaned more on the misogynistic, this isn't hockey, we can do better. Uh, side of things have really said hey look how great this is look at how they're allowing some more physicality than is allowed internationally we're really hopeful that this is going to move forward um and what's going to be really interesting to watch as the team grow as the sport grows as the sorry as the league grows and naturally the sport grows is how does that expansion work? How does, I mean, as you said, we're three weeks in, so calling for expansion is interesting, but how this <laughs> yeah. momentum, how this momentum is sustained, we see this as still as an issue in the WNBA yeah. 20 some years on because they, um, they are bankrolled by the NBA and their expansion means that there are you know, there are limited spots for rookies. You see people in the draft in the WNBA get cut at training camp because there just aren't those roster spots. So it'd be interesting as this grows to see how new talent um, shows up because when there is that limited um, financial uh, capability for the athletes themselves as compared to their male counterparts, you know, how does how does the old guard stay on and transition is going to be it's going to be really interesting yeah. as the sport grows. Yeah, I, I want to talk about the professional pathways in a second, John, but I've got a few more sure. flowers to throw it here because no because something the league has been doing that's really smart is utilizing excellent midsize professional arenas. But in Montreal, they're doing something even different that I think is so, so cool. They're utilizing two different arenas in different parts of the city, and it's worked really well so far. They've had great attendance numbers at both the Verdun Auditorium and Place Bell. So Verdun Auditorium is an arena that's been around for a long time, but it's a good mid-size arena. Place Bell is where the Montreal Canadiens AHL affiliate, the Laval Rocket, play. It's a world-class arena but in both cases they're mid-size good arenas and they're moving tickets because they're placed in big time population boom areas a lot of people mm. live in laval near place bell and a lot of people our age uh sort of the young hip new parents are like uh you know dinks dual income no kids a lot of people have made their way down to the southwest corner of montreal so uh verdun saint henry villamar these are places where you're getting young energized people who may align their identities with the movement of more equity-based sports leagues. It's really, really smart. And in both cases, both these arenas are on public transit lines. Super easy to get to. And I think that's one of the things that maybe goes back to my YouTube theory in the United States. Make it easy for people to support it. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's certainly a lesson learned, right? Uh, to pull from another Canadian league, uh, you know, if you look at the CFL, a lot of the failings of the big market teams, uh, as in large, uh, you know, the Toronto's and BC's of the world, mm -hmm. is that for mm -hmm. a long time, they have or did compete in cavernous um in cavernous stadiums where, you know, it's impossible with the Argos draw to make some of the stadiums that they've played in look full. 
it's just not going to happen. And there's there's a perception issue as there as well to go back to our media point. You know, you can only do so much framing. Um, ask the producers of AMI to make somebody you know look good and. <laughs> There's a lot of work they have to do on me every every time I come on. But the, when we look at the uh, at the stadiums, right, and how we can show that interesting, and how we can show that um, that atmosphere is really interesting when you get down to those smaller things. And I love actually that. Um, and apologies to listeners, I don't have an encyclopedic knowledge of where each team plays, but historically, people have chosen to go to sort of collegiate stadiums, right, when they're at this at this smaller level. And I think it's great to build in these community, um, these places that are that are in those areas, like you mentioned. John, you touched on this before, the notion of professional pathways and what that means for the development of the sport. And I think this is such a critical moment for women's hockey, which for the better part of 20 years, I would say since the Salt Lake Olympics, really has been on the radar somewhat. But people within the sport have been calling for an opportunity for women to at least be able to make some kind of living chasing this passion in their 20s and 30s. And it's popped up in the soccer world. It's popped popped up in the basketball world, but I think the more opportunities you create for professional pathways, it's going to help the sport grow internally inside Canada and the U.S. But even if you look at the U-17 uh, World Championships that took place in women's hockey over the weekend, it was not Canada and the USA in the finals. It was the United States and Czechia. So the more that can be done to grow women's sport and create pathways for people to make some semblance of a living playing the sport, that's going to be good not just for the league itself, that's going to be good for the overall sport. And I almost wonder if there's a parallel that could be drawn to parasport here to say, what would the prospects be of trying to professionalize some parasport to help the overall growth of the movement, not something that simply gets attention once every two years at a Paralympic or maybe at a world championships in like the AMI case. Absolutely. So uh, there's a, there's a number of directions in which I can I can roll very quickly. But the um, the biggest one I would say is if you look sport to sport, what is professional and and uh, historically para sport has run on the model in a number of sports that you know the only way to make a living is on a national team, and that is your equivalent of your club team and club and country are kind of uh, together. You play club sport, but but you're not generally getting paid by them. In wheelchair basketball, there's a long-established European leagues. Uh, there's a Champions League. There's a wonderful German league, Spanish league, French league. So you do see people go over, but it is not, you know, you're, the the number of people who support themselves and their families, it's getting larger, but it's, you know, it's not everybody. Um And I know a lot of those uh, leagues have, you know, import limits and stuff like that. Yeah, wheelchair yeah rugby you see people being flown in to play and get their living expenses paid and, and maybe some more money but they're not generally speaking uh making making a living i certainly um you know it, it's really interesting to watch how that the impact that that has on on the national teams and how there is you know if being a member of the national team is the only way that you can make money it really makes tryout stressful it turns out um and and it really challenges what the club system feels they can do and and how athletes and how athletes develop 
Hey, John, got to get out of here. Once again, the host of the show mismanaged the clock in a terrible way. Thanks for stepping in for Brock today. All the best to you. Talk to you later. It's all good. We'll see you next week. <laughs> that is John Lepke at the AMI Sports Desk filling in for Brock Richardson. Coming up after the break, 2023 was the hottest year on record. How does that reconcile with the Paris Climate Agreement? Journalist Arno Kopecki will explore the implications. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. 2023 was a lot of things, including the hottest year on record. The planet averaged 1.48 degrees above pre-industrial levels. Now, you may recall that a bunch of countries pledged with the Paris Climate Agreement to keep temperatures from exceeding an increase of 1.5 degrees. So, uh... How do I reconcile all of this? I can't do that. I'm not a climate solid scientist, but journalist Arno Kopecki may be able to help put this into some context. Hey, good morning, Arno. Good morning, Dave. So, Arno, put this into context for me. 1.48 degrees since pre-industrial levels against the Paris Climate Agreement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it, it came as no surprise that last year was the hottest year in history. Uh, anybody who was looking out the window uh, would have noticed that it was exceptionally warm, but uh, the amount by which we broke the previous record was shocking. 1.48 degrees is 0 0.02 degrees off of the, the magical number of 1.5 that, uh, as you said, countries around the world agreed to, like, not go past that. You know, there's... These numbers are all somewhat arbitrary and just round, but you know it's important to choose a target. And the 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 International Panel on Climate Change did study the differences between 1.5 degrees and uh, and 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 anything less, and found it is very catastrophic. So all to say, we are much further and faster on this awful train of of climate warming than than we had anticipated, and we're about to blow past. A boundary that we had promised we would not blow past. That's kind of that's kind of the gist right there. And and it's a promise that wasn't made all that long ago in the grand scheme yeah, of things. Yeah, 2016 was. That's right. Yeah, it was so, very recent. So things are moving fast. So yeah. so so where do things go from here? Yeah, well, we're I, to me, I think we're at this interesting uh, sort of race of of good versus bad. You know, because uh, renewable energy is taking off. I think you know we have hit peak oil they kind of uh, is the general consensus that we're about to start lowering emissions but we're still emissions are still going up we're still heading in the wrong direction but the train is slowly starting to shift so uh i do think though that we are about to see a summer and spring and fall of of really biblical proportions it's going to make all all indications are that you know in terms of fire and drought uh this next season is going to be really insane well, I, I was reading a story yesterday out of British Columbia about the number of wildfires that are still burning underground, yeah. even after last yeah. year's wildfire season, and then yeah. putting that into context with a drought in North America that has actually been going on for a couple of years here. You and I have talked about drought conditions before. So right. what what is the manifestation of drought right now in the Western part of the continent, but, a continent, but maybe even more broadly? 
Sure. I mean, we're, I, I was speaking to a meteorologist or a climatologist who, was, who, who said we are watching in front of our eyes the desiccation of Western Canada. So glaciers are disappearing. Our, our entire systems from agriculture to electricity, especially in British Columbia, where we run on hydroelectricity, um, the water was too low to fill the Site C Dam, this huge dam that they've been building for years at immense expense. They couldn't fill it last fall like they wanted to because the Peace River is too low. Uh, the Mackenzie River, which fee, which supplies Western Arctic with, that's how they barge all their supplies up to the Arctic. The Mackenzie River was too low to do that. So they're having to fly up their supplies there as well. Uh, oil production in Alberta is going to go down this year because the rivers are too low. It's a very water intensive process. Um, their reservoirs are at about 30, 40% throughout Southern Alberta. So agriculture is in deep, deep trouble. Uh, that's also true of British Columbia and our agriculture and our, we had to, you know, import a fifth of our electricity this fall and summer because the rivers were all so low. We couldn't make enough electricity. Uh, usually we're exporting it and making money by selling electricity. Uh, so those are just some of the implications, I think, are, you know, as our, as our snow melt goes away, because winters are so warm, there's not, you know, we used to just have this reliable slow drip of snow melt and glacial melt throughout the summer that would feed our rivers and, and be this sort of reliable, steady source of water for agriculture and drinking water for communities. Um, all of the implications really like a ricochet throughout the entire system that we have built. Arno, on the way out the door, is there any optimism you can express for me or should I just go uh, get my bottle <laughs> of whiskey a, on the way home? Day. Well, I, I, how about some irony, Dave? I mean, it's a snow day in Vancouver. As school is closed, we're going to be making snowmen today with my daughter. I think listeners might be one, viewers might be wondering, like, wow, there's, you know, all of North America is in this deep freeze. They're setting cold temperature records in, like, Missouri and Texas today. And it was minus 40 all weekend in, in Alberta, where my parents live. But up in the north, in, in the Arctic, it's, like, plus three. And so uh, that's not really good news. This, you know, this global warming is really doing funky things to the jet stream that normally traps the cold air up up around the poles. And that cold air has been leaking down over over uh, over the you know the, this lower part of North America. And meanwhile, our warm air is going up there. So they should call it global weirding instead of climate change in my view and it's fun to get weird sometimes so let's think of it that way okay uh, see so you know what i'm gonna i'm gonna drill down on that and say arno gets to build a snowman with his daughter today and that makes me feel good that's so the good news that's the good news there we this, go yeah. family is family is good we like that hey arno you're the best thank you for this Right on, Dave. That's Arno Kopecki. He's a climate journalist based in British Columbia. Arno's also an author. Next time he gets a book out there, we're going to promote the heck out of that one as well. Coming up after the bricks. The brick? How about coming up after the break? I'm thinking about the brick because my new dresser arrives this weekend. Even though one of the elevators is down in my building, I've, I've already had a fight with my concierge. She, she was not happy with me. Coming up after the break, CES unveiled a whole bunch of new gadgets last week. Some of them are cool. Some of them are... So Jenny Bovard, Megan Gilmore, and I will play a game of useful or useless. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv.
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and in audio at AMIplus.ca. CES is done and dusted. Las Vegas is back to being just sand. Uh, not quite. There were thousands of tech items on display. A few garnered some big buzz, but buzz is not the whole story. Are these gadgets useful or useless? I made a list, but I'm not doing this alone. Jenny Bovard and Megan Gilmore can help. Jenny is the host of the Low Vision Moments podcast. Megan is a reporter at Canadian Affairs. Hello, Jenny. Good morning. And hello, Megan. Good morning, everyone. So a big shout out to our control room who got some sound effects this morning available for this segment. Delighted by this so that I don't have to make the sound effects. So when one of you says the word useful, you'll hear. And when one of you says useless, you'll hear. Ah, uh, yes, at the height of entertainment, uh, AMI HQ. I love it. Thank you guys down the hall for that one. Let's jump right into this, starting in the world of televisions. Samsung and LG both showed off transparent TVs. When the TV is not in use, it's totally see-through. Jenny, useful or useless? Useful. And I... I love it. That's such a perfect sound. <laughs> Let me tell you why I think it's useful, guys. I, despite being someone who lives with low vision, I love my series. I love my movies. I've always been a big movie buff. Thanks, Dad. But not only do I think is this, it's so aesthetically pleasing. Like, it is, it is very nice. I like the look of it. But what really grabs me about this tech is the fact that LG uses OLEDs, and that stands for or organic LEDs. And I won't get into the science, but this means that there's no backlighting required. And as someone with really extreme light sensitivity, I'm very intrigued by that. The Samsung version uses micro LEDs and it's the same thing. It doesn't require backlighting. Apparently these are not new technologies. They've been in use for years, excuse me. I had no idea, but I'm, I, I wanna understand and experience, like, is this gonna be a more natural experience on the eyes and on the brain? Like when we, you know, look at things like progressive scan versus interlace and flat screen TVs versus tube TVs. So. I'm not going to run out and buy one, but uh, when it's time to replace a new TV, uh, my TV, I'm so into it. I'm so into it. That, that's a that's an awesome answer. Like, that's an incredible answer, and it might have actually swayed me. But, Megan, where do you land? Transparent TVs, useful or useless? Okay, I'm going to go with the answer I had before I listened to Jenny's excellent defense, and I'm going to go with useless. Because why? <laughs> why do we need this, everybody? Just Why? Um, and then all I can picture is somebody like me, um, who let's say I'm at somebody's house and their TV is mounted onto their wall and it's not in use. I can see myself just like, I don't know, leaning against it, getting fingerprints all over the place. Like practically, I'm just like, this could be a problem for me. Like I could really mess up somebody's TV. So yeah, that, that's, that's just where I, and I just, oh. I, yeah, I'm just like, this is a gimmick to get people to buy your incredibly overpriced TV. Yeah, oh, my gosh. Despite Jenny's amazing answer, I still lend closer to Megan on useless. 
Oh, I thought we were gonna hear the sound. Yeah, there again. we go. Oh, there there we, okay, okay, we came, we came, we came a little late there. That's all right. That's guys, okay. I, I have to say, I thought of these things too. Just to interject quickly, I thought of these things too. But let's think about it. What were your thoughts when flat screen TVs came out? Were you like, up? Oh, I don't need one of those. That's just a gimmick. I actually always liked the idea of a flat screen TV. Oh, wow. I, I, I can, I can see a use case. <laughs> I can see like maybe if somebody lives in a very small apartment and they can only put their TV like near a window, but they would still like to be able to see out the window. I, I, oh. I can, I can. I can see that use case. I can also see like maybe like in an office context. But for me personally, where I sit today as someone who always puts his TV against a regular old wall, I actually like having the TV there. I don't want to look at my walls. <laughs> my walls make me sad. Okay, staying in the world of monitors and screens, Asus unveiled a 17 plus inch foldable portable monitor that plugs into pretty much plugs in or connects to any device you want and can fold up to the size of a small book to slide in your bag. Guys, I'm going to go first on this one. I am going for useful. I just see this from the perspective as someone who's legally blind, who ends up dealing with a lot of screens in both work and personal life. If I can bring something around that's going to give me the opportunity to use a big screen, but not take up all the room in my bag, I'm so into it. So, so into it. Megan, what say you? Oh, I 100% agree useful. And I'm just gonna throw this out there. Like if I was a company or an organization that works with people with vision loss or works in like the adaptive assistive technology space, I would be all over this. And I would be trying to like get products to have to do demonstrations with people and help them learn how to incorporate this into their everyday life. Like, yes. Okay. 100%. All right, Jenny, do we have unanimity? For me, personally, only for me, I say useless. Oh. I, we were so I, close. I, <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I really, I am with you on the access possibilities, the accessibility options. Fantastic. This might be good for people like gamers, students, editors, right? They need this. They need, you guys need this tool for specific things. I struggle to find a use for this in, in my life when I have other tools that I can turn to already. And I'm, I think I'm trying to get away from screens and more into other options, like using my voiceover, mm -hmm. using dictate, this kind of thing. And, and, and when I looked at the photos and videos, I looked at a bunch of different setups. It felt just going back to that <laughs> unnatural feeling with my eyeballs, my eyes, my brain did not like it. I felt uneasy, but Hey, if the full, if you can get past the fold, it's awesome. It more options. Yeah. So we just we just shot it back up on screen there for a second. Jenny is right. It looks almost like a slot machine in the way that it's curved. So it, it, it it's not it's not sort of a straight line screen. It's like very malleable. And some of these iterations do look uh, a little bit a little My bit stomach awkward. Hurts. Yeah. I can't. Okay. I can't. It's not for me. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. Okay. Here we go. I got another one here, and this one actually got a bunch of buzz. And when I showed it to one of our producers, uh, Bob, he was like, "I want that. I want that right now." It's an attachment that you connect to the bottom of your iPhone, just iPhone at this point, but I bet you they'll be able to figure this out for all smartphones, to give you an actual physical keyboard at the bottom of your phone, like a BlackBerry. It's called the Clicks. Jenny, useful or useless? 
again, for me personally only, useless. First of all, aesthetically, it's a hard no. It is not aesthetically pleasing for me. I definitely see the accessibility possibilities, the nostalgia, the people who have the muscle memory in their thumbs, but I've never been a little QWERTY keyboard person, never had a BlackBerry. I, again, have my own sort of tools that I turn to. My preferences would be either like a full-on keyboard. Right now, I've got, uh, uh, I, I, I'm big on the the mini uh, Bluetooth keyboards. I've yes, got a handful of yes. them, right? And so that would be my preference or straight up again, dictating. And with all of these tools, hardcore proofreading is is my best friend because nothing <laughs> is proof. But options are great. Yeah, I, I also think there's a lot of people who are going to like this, but I prefer an actual keyboard. So I'm going to vote useless as well. Megan, what about unanimity on this one? Oh, see, I'm confused. So it's not an actual keyboard? Like notable, it's it's like a BlackBerry keyboard. So it's very small, tiny buttons at the bo at the bottom of your phone. When I say an actual uh, keyboard, I mean like a computer keyboard that I can get my fingers on. Okay, so then I'm gonna have to say it's it's useless because the keys are likely going to be too small, and I'm just gonna be sad. There you go. Okay. Well, there you say we we found unanimity. Although I do think this is one for for a lot of folks uh, in the the BlackBerry world who miss their BlackBerry. Mm -hmm. They're they're going to feel like this is the way to get back to it. So you know that that's yes. pretty. That's you know that that that's good for them. But you know it's our. I opinion. hope it doesn't click. Well, it's called the clicks, so I imagine it does. Oh, click. it does. Oh, it good makes that awful noise, <laughs> or sorry, that nostalgic noise that people love. <laughs> the nostalgic noise, noise that people love. Uh, okay, let's move on to uh, this next one, which is sort of in the health world, but also in the beauty world. It's the Anora Magic Mirror. It's a smart mirror that scans your face to read your vital signs. Megan, useful or useless? Uh, for me, likely this is going to be very useless. <laughs> you know, play the sound twice because you said very useless. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> because I can't, I have, uh, maybe maybe viewers have noticed it, I have significant nystigmas. Uh, so my eyes do not stay still. And the thought of having to have a mirror scan, like scan my face, I'm sure I'm not going to be looking at it right. I'm sure I'm going to have an angle off. Like it, it just stresses me out so much just even thinking about it. No, we're not. It's like school picture day all over again. We're not doing this. Yeah, Jenny, I'm also going to land on the useless side. I, I just, I if, if I was to use some kind of health tracker, it's not going to be a mirror. I'm going to get one of these smart rings or a smart watch. I'm with the two of you and useless. <laughs> you got to say the trigger word. <laughs> For all of the same reasons, not only, but I was really super disappointed that, to le learn that this was not like the Beauty and the Beast mirror or the Sleeping Beauty mirror in, in the least. And I was really hoping that it would help me like with my makeup or something or let me know that um, I have spaghetti sauce on my glasses before leaving the house, but it, it doesn't seem to do these kinds of things. But I'm with you, Dave, as well. Like if I want to get into the 
the little guiding things that a fitness tracker might do. Like I, that's how I learned that I have a really low resting heart rate. Um, and, and that's an interesting fact to know and maybe speak to my doctor about. Uh, it's kind of gimmicky for me. It also looks bright, <laughs> but it's very futuristic looking, very sci-fi. I could see it in a movie or in a, guy, a good sci-fi story. Yeah, it's, it's one of these moments where maybe it's just too early for me to buy into. But at this moment, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just not there. And that, that was a lot of stuff at CES where, where maybe there's a prospect or a kernel, but I'm not there yet. Uh, guys, no need to go too, too long on this one. I'm putting it more as just a sticker shock value that after talking to some people this morning, turns out that maybe it's not as sticker shocky as I thought. Uh, Razer put out a company, uh, put, put out a chair, a gaming chair that reclines and has lumbar support. Think office chair here. So it's a gaming chair, but it's an office chair. But it's also going to be over $800 Canadian. I'm going with useless. $800 for an office chair, Megan. I, I just can't get on board yeah. with it. No, no. That, okay. And full disclosure, the office chair I'm sitting on was given to me by friends who were getting rid of it, and I paid $0. So that is how <laughs> I furnished my home office. Um, I'm going to go with just the price, not the concept. The price alone makes it useless. And uh, Jenny, you're the elite athlete of the bunch, so I feel like you might deviate from us here. Oh, no one should be sitting long enough that they need a, a chair, that an office chair this expensive. If you're sitting for that long, you need to get up and take a little stroll and move your body about, would be my opinion. If you have decent posture and like a decently ergonomically sound chair, you shouldn't need this unless you're a hardcore gamer or you spend lots of time in an editing room for some reason like this is a specialty item useless for me <laughs> although i did find out talking to a bunch of people on the show this morning that uh, apparently 400 dollars for a chair not uh, not unreasonable so you know maybe i'm the out of touch one these things happen okay this one straight up jumped off the screen to me i was delighted super scala put out a charging cable that stays automatically coiled, but when you pull it, it stretches out. So your your charging cable cord is always the perfect length. Megan, useful or useless? Useful. Like, you know, you're, when like, I, I just see it as a safety thing when your charger cable is like sticking up there and you don't see it and that whole thing, or it gets like caught in your like, I don't know, your rolling office chair wheels. Not like that's never happened to me. So yes, yeah, this is just very useful on so many different levels. Think, think about the experience even of traveling, right? Throwing some charging cables in your bag and they get all oh, yes. and you can't pull it out. Yes. Perfect coil just landing in your school bag and you can pull it out whenever you please. Not to mention, like uh, Megan identified, Jenny, the possibility of uh, safety. Uh, I've gone to bed a couple times after a few too many adult beverages and woken up the next morning utterly tangled in my charging cable because, of course, I fell asleep holding my phone because, you know, it's the 21st century. So I am voting for useless. I know useful, useful. Oh, oh gosh, I got it. I got my own thing wrong because I was too busy. Like I was talking to my therapists. Useful, Jenny. I'm so in love with this. But what do you think? 
I'm I'm just as if not more excited than the two of you about this one. One of my great talents is tangling wires anytime, any place. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Uh, within instant, I can have anything tangled. And yes, this includes jewelry like necklaces. Um, uh, aside from the lingo in the marketing being a little bit problematic, I noticed on the website they use words like addictive and OCD really oh, uh, yeah. sort of loosely. But the the price point is great, and for the reasons that you guys mentioned, uh, I I'm I'm very much sold i might actually run out and buy some of these so i yeah it, it's so useful quick quick sidebar on this one it it wasn't that long ago that i was turned on to the idea of six and ten feet charging cables i just thought the one or three foot world was the only world i could live in life-changing megan life-changing mm -hmm. when mm -hmm. i found out you could have long charging cables oh yeah i stood a really long one until it broke and it was it was great, and the current one I use is shorter, and it, it was a really hard adjustment to go back to the short cable. <laughs> Once you've lived that life, Jenny, what about you? Oh my goodness, yeah, game changer. Yeah, life changing, like totally life changing. It's, it's, it's funny in life; it's the simple things. A ten dollar, ten foot charging cable can make you feel radically different about your entire existence. <laughs> All right, one question on the way out the door here, guys. It's more of a general question, but a lot of the buzz around CES was artificial intelligence this, artificial intelligence that, and then when you were done hearing about AI, look at this electric car, look at this electric car. Oh my gosh. I'm so sick of it. I'm so sick of AI. I'm so sick of electric cars. Megan, are you fed up with hearing about AI and electric cars? Well, Dave, the federal government isn't going to like your view on being tired <laughs> of hearing about electric vehicles. Um, for those who don't know, the government of Canada is really pushing electric vehicles right now. Um, uh, I am, ooh, I'm a, I'm, I have a little nuanced opinion on this one. Yes, I'm tired of it. Um, but I do think we need thoughtful, critical reporting on both of these topics. I'm going to shout out my colleague, Finn Depensier, who recently did a piece a few months ago about problems with getting your EVs serviced and how like electric vehicle owners aren't always super happy with their cars. And I think we need more critical reporting like that mm. if that's going to be a policy direction that the government goes in. Same with um, artificial <laughs> intelligence. There's a lot of big ethical uh, issues around that in terms of how we value human beings and what it means to be a human. So I think we do need to be critical of it and not just like, oh my gosh, artificial intelligence. Like <laughs> don't, don't misunderstand me. I don't outright oppose electric cars becoming more commonplace. I don't outright oppose it. I think that, like you pointed out there, Megan, there's maybe a little bit of, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? Maybe a little bit of one-sidedness in the way that it's perceived as a climate policy oh. in and of itself. I'm just tired of hearing, and such and such company has launched their electric car. At this point, like, that should just be commonplace. Like, it should no longer be a news story. <laughs> uh, that's more journalism criticism, but I, but I like your answer too. Jenny, are you fed up with hearing about a AI and electric cars simply because they're buzzwords? Short answer would be yes, but I, for the reasons that you both explained very articulately, I understand why these continue to be hot topics, both with our governments and, you know, in the news cycle and in everyday conversation. Like these are big behemoth changes that are happening in the course of human history. And so I think it makes sense that we're talking about it and it, and it, for me as as someone on maybe a little bit on the outside like it's happening very quickly oh yeah and <laughs> right so few of us are going to be unaffected by ai and electric vehicles and you know i wonder like 
will low vision moments one day be hosted by AI, Jenny? No, probably <laughs> not. But, you know, there are big questions that I have, like what's happening with the electric vehicle batteries? Like, how are we disposing of those? What's the environmental impact? Also, where's my self-driving EV already? Oh, yes, where's my self-driving car? That's what I want to know. That's what I want to get at the heart of. Uh, when they replace you with a robot, Jenny, it'll be Jenny Rovard. Jenny Rovard will be hosting low vision moments. I, I, I do not want to think about that. <laughs> okay, sorry. Apologies. Well, don't <laughs> worry. Dave, uh, the D David Bot, David Bot Brown will also, David Bot Brown will also be uh, doing now with David Bot Brown. Uh, Jenny, thank you for this. Have a lovely day. You too. Beep boop. <laughs> and uh, beep boop and goodbye to Megan Gilmore as well. Bye, everybody. That's Jenny Bovard, the host of the Low Vision Moments podcast. And Megan Gilmore is a reporter for Canadian Affairs. Coming up after the break, you'll find out what's coming up on Kelly and Rumia later this afternoon. And then Alex has a story all about misinformation on YouTube. That doesn't happen. There's never really any misinformation on YouTube. It's just the, it's the soul bearer of truth. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Coming up at 2 p.m. Eastern time, Kelly and Rumya hit the airwaves for another edition of Kelly and Rumya. It's funny how that works. Rumya Amuthan has some insight on what's coming up at 2 o'clock. Hey, good morning, Rumya. Good morning, Dave. Yes, we got a jam-packed Wednesday lineup, including uh, the Taylor Swift course that's set to begin at Harvard University. Mm. Corinne Van Dusen of course, is the one reporting this to us as our entertainment reporter. And uh, we have the CCB Toronto Visionaries chapter turning 10 this year. It's a big birthday. They got a celebration going on later in February or in March, sorry. So we're going to learn more about that with our community reporter, Stephen Ricci. And on our uh, traveling segment with JJ Hunt, where he describes everything and anything interesting to us, he's taking us on an adventure to Malaysia to talk about the Tamil Hindu festival of Taipusam, which is, you know, the calendar New Year's start for Tamil. Right on. The world. Right on. Okay. Yeah. All right. A little bit of a little bit of travel uh, with the Kelly and Rum crew this afternoon. That's good stuff. Rum, yeah, stay right there because Alex Smythe, you're hanging out here. You've got a story about misinformation on YouTube and how it can be uh, profitable. Yeah, Dave, because uh, a report came out that claims YouTube has made millions of dollars uh, from channels and creators who are posting false claims around climate change. And in particular, the, uh, the report found that YouTube had made $13.4 million in ad revenue from 96 channels. So uh, from without going into all the details around uh, kind of what they're spouting about, I, I really want to uh, pick at this one kind of core idea around ad revenue and how YouTube uses its ads and and so let's let's end the show with a bit of fun instead of a bit of the dourness there's been some on on the show today so I want to find out from the roundtable what is the biggest pet peeve when it comes to social media ads because YouTube is making a ton of money of, around it what bugs you most so Ramya let's start first with you 
It's the most basic thing, Alex. It's when I can't get out of an ad, AKA the ads are always the least accessible thing on a website. I can mm. put my money on that often uh, with screen reader use, I mean. So you could be, you know, scrolling and doing a really great job and everything is labeled properly but the ads themselves are not there's no close button and if there is i can't find it with the screen reader um luckily there are kind of add-ons and features of different web browsers now and even mobile apps that let you get rid of ads by just you know putting on um reader mode or something like that safari that's the example but still my pet peeve is just how are you making the ads the most inaccessible thing that's the number one thing i want to close yeah ad blockers the ad blocker extensions yeah. on a lot of browsers i uh, not that any of us would ever stream anything illegally but i sometimes wonder how never. somebody who uses a screen reader reader gets those ads off the uh, off the video get our before. brothers mm. <laughs> no well we, no, who says we have brothers Whoever. who says oh, we have who says anybody has yeah. brothers because we would never do <laughs> we would never do such a thing we would never ever uh my biggest pet peeve with ads in the social space is that they're everywhere at this point i scroll down any of my feeds and the majority of it is nobody that i follow it's just a bunch of suggested pages and advertisements <laughs> and it's awful and it's brutal nazreen what's your biggest pet peeve with ads in the social space in the web space i agree with you dave and a lot of the things that you don't even search up but uh, me and my friend will be talking about something and next thing I know I see an ad about it but I think my biggest pet peeve would be the quantity of ads yeah. coming up so I'd say if I'm watching a 10 minute YouTube video three ads come up and a lot of them just you don't have the option of skipping and it's like a 30 second video so you're like stuck there. <laughs> Alex, I've mentioned this to you before, but as a Spotify premium user, it is killing me how many built-in automated ads are being inserted into podcasts on Spotify right now. Like, it is killing me, Alex. Like, like I, it frustrates me yeah. beyond belief. Yes, they don't do it when I'm listening to music, but it is killing me when I'm listening to podcasts. I'm like, what am I paying you $12 a month for? Well, and even beyond that, like, yes, you, you have all this amount of advertisement that's put on through YouTube and YouTube generating the ad content. But then you also have the content that you're consuming has their own advertisement. So you're getting that double whammy that it almost feels like, I'm sure if you kind of start to calculate it, you're probably getting close to like, you know, two, three minutes per half an hour at least uh, of ad content that you are consuming, which, you know, isn't that far off from what you're getting from a traditional television network. It, it used to be, okay, you had a one, like one single ad at the start of a video, you could usually skip it after five seconds. No, now you gotta wait for 30 seconds to skip a few ads. Now the thing you are watching is advertising to you. Oh, it, there's a break in, in the middle mm -hmm. of it. Here's an ad break. Oh, and at the end, there's another ad. So it, it, it really has quietly built up itself uh, in terms of how YouTube's generating money, how the content creators are, are generating money all through the use of ads and placements and things like that it, it, it's becoming less of that uh, enticement to use these types of services and and then as soon as they start to branch into ones that are very specific and tailored as Nizreen you mentioned then it almost gets very scary about what the privacy around uh, the ad information is so I have bad news for all of you the four of us are supposed to be some kind of collective voice for young people and young people with disabilities in this country. And all four of us are yelling at the clouds like old people, there are too many advertisements back in the day. There were 
there are no ads. You just went to the store and you bought your thing. So, uh, yeah, now we need to hire a whole bunch of Gen Zers to work at AMI because uh, we're officially uh, the old timers. We're the old guard. We're on the way now. out. Yeah, that's it. We aged out, gang. It happens just like that. Ramya, Alex, and Serene, have a lovely day. I'll talk to you guys tomorrow. That's all the time there is for the show today. Until tomorrow at 9 a.m. Eastern time, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have a little bit of fun. Just a little bit, a smidge, a sprinkle, a pinch and a punch. See you tomorrow. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Hi, I'm Red Sale, inviting you to download the latest episode of My Life in Books, where internationally acclaimed authors discuss their lives, their work, and three books that have resonated with them. That's My Life in Books, available wherever you get your AMI podcasts.